hormone harmony is not just a supplement for women going through perimenopause, menopause, or postmenopause. It's become a phenomenon. Women cannot stop talking about it on social media. A bottle of hormone harmony is sold every 24 seconds. Happy Mammoth, the company that created Hormone Harmony, is dedicated to making women's lives easier. That means using only science-backed ingredients that have been proven to work for women. They make no compromise when it comes to quality, and it shows. Hormone Harmony contains science-backed herbal extracts called adaptogens. Now, here's the beauty about adaptogens. They help the body adapt to any stressors, like chaotic hormonal changes that happen naturally throughout a woman's life. So, Hormone Harmony isn't just for menopause. Any women with symptoms of hormonal imbalances can take it, but it's perfect for those with those horrible menopause symptoms that put a woman's life on hold. Hot flashes and night sweats, racing thoughts and low moods, poor sleep and feeling tired all the time, occasional bloating and gas, no desire to be in bed next to someone, if you know what I mean. Yeah, Hormone Harmony can help with all of these things. And the biggest benefit feeling like myself again. And that's what women mention over and over in the reviews. There are over 17,000 reviews for Hormone Harmony. For a limited time, you can get 15% off your entire first order at happymammoth.com. Just use our code, which is the acronym of the podcast, T-S-N-O-T-Y-A-W at checkout. That's the podcast acronym at checkout at happymammoth.com calling all memoirists. I'm so excited to let you know that I've put together an incredible all about memoir lineup for Saturday the 11th of May from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. Eastern Time in which six amazing speakers guide you through everything you need to know to write a memoir that will sell. You'll get opportunities to ask questions of best-selling memoirists while also standing a chance to have your query letter live critiqued during the webinar. To see the awesome lineup and to register, go to biancamaray.com. There's an early bird promotion for the first 50 delegates who sign up. Come and join us and get your memoir groove on. Hi there and welcome to our show, The Shit No One Tells You About Writing. I'm Bianca Murray, and I'm joined by Carly Waters and Cece Lira from PS Literary Agency. We'll be kicking off today's episode with our usual Books with Hook segment, after which we'll go to today's guest. Hi everyone, welcome to another Books with Hook segment. This is one of our experimental ones in which we are having the very brave author on the call with us so that we can discuss the query letter and opening pages with them so that they have an opportunity to answer our questions and ask questions of their own. So it's my pleasure today to welcome our guest author, Emma, who is going to kick us off by reading her query letter. Take it away, Emma. Thank you, Bianca. Dear Ms. Waters, I am seeking representation for my debut novel, Cuckoo Bees, complete at 74,000 words. Cuckoo Bees is a multi-POV psychological thriller that melds the dysfunctional twin dynamics of Rose Carlyle's The Girl in the Mirror with the interrogation room tension of Tana French's The Secret Place. You mentioned on your podcast that you enjoy stories featuring sisters, so I hope that my book will be of interest to you. Devoted mother, social parasite, murderer. Two out of three describe Lena Jansen, whose world has just been shattered by the death of her young son. Making matters worse, Lena's identical twin sister, Joe Bailey, is apparently to blame. Joe killed him, then took her own life. Or at least, that's what Lena claims. Cuckoo Bees untangles the snarl of deception surrounding the crime, flipping between the sisters' twisted history and the present homicide investigation. The detectives assigned to the case are suspicious of Lena. When they start digging, they uncover holes in her story and uncomfortable truths about her past. But as Lena dissembles and deflects her way through the interrogations, the detectives find themselves outmaneuvered at almost every turn. Lena's playing the long game, and she only ever plays to win. I am a research lawyer specializing in family and refugee law, and I have two nonfiction publication credits for legal writing, titles redacted. I live in Toronto, where I am working on my second novel and perfecting my homemade pasta. I have included the first five pages of Cuckoo Bees for your review. Thank you for your time and consideration. Sincerely, Emma, she, her. Awesome, Emma. Thank you so much for that. Right, Carly, since the query letter was directed at you, why don't you kick us off? Okay, deep breath, Carly. I thought this was so good. <laughs> you did such a good job. 
you really just like followed the structure, executed it perfectly with the three paragraphs. For me, I mean, oh man, I feel like catching my breath. I'm so excited. My heart's like boom, 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 boom. Okay, so deep breath. Okay, so... The question I have is the title. I'm like, okay, I don't know what's exactly what's going on here, but um, it's okay. I don't need to know everything about the title, but it's like a little bit of question mark and that's okay. The comps are great. Obviously you mentioned that you listen on the podcast. So we have like a little bit of that personalization connection. This is one of those queries. And this is like what happens in my head when I'm reading a lot of queries. Normally, as we talked about on the podcast before, like I'm reading usually dozens, if not like a hundred queries at a time. So I'm often like skimming for keywords or I'm like trying to figure out like what exactly is going to draw me to this. So with this one, I really love that you had that like staccato opening of like devoted mother, social parasite, murderer, you know what I mean? Like you hit kind of the notes on like, if somebody was pulling for keywords, like me, when I'm reading 100 queries at 8pm on a Tuesday night, you really like hit all of those like hard hitting words and, and kind of very dramatic openings. So I thought that was great. As somebody who has young children, I have two young boys, the like the young son thing, like some agents can't read about dangerous things happening with like Cece's thing is like pets. She can't handle hearing or reading about dead animals or animals in danger or crisis. As a mom of two young boys, sometimes I have a hard time with things about young children in danger. So it's but I, I can separate my life from my agent brain. So I don't, I'm, I'm not one of those agents that necessarily has a problem separating those two things. I'm usually okay with that. So that was fine for me, but it, it could be a red flag for other agents who um, might also have small children. And so when I got to the point in the query about making matters worse, Lena's identical twin sister, Joe Bailey, is apparently to blame. Joe killed them and took her own life. After that, you kind of hooked me at that point. Like you've kind of like done the job that the query letter is supposed to do. And after after that point, I'm kind of just like skimming in terms of like, okay, what, what happens next? But in terms of the job a query is supposed to do, a query is supposed to hook agents and make them request pages. So you did everything that, that a query has to do. And then you left off with some really extra juicy bits in the end about the, is it Lena that is leading us on the whole time? Really, I don't have anything to, to kind of critique because I think you did like such a wonderful, wonderful job. And then with the last paragraph, you know, you have the little bio in terms of your history perfecting your homemade pasta super adorable so yeah all in all I really honestly think it's a a perfect query and uh, I'm talking really fast because I'm just so excited it's so good awesome awesome Carly thank you Emma we we were gonna hear from Cece as well and then after that you can comment and maybe ask questions etc but it's great that Emma lives in Toronto and so do Cece and I so we're around for some of that homemade pasta just saying okay Cece what would you like to say about that query letter I mean first of all I want the pasta Um, so again, I just want to echo everything Carly said. This is really good. Definitely hooked me. This is an amazing, amazing query. I don't think you're going to need any notes because I have a feeling that you will be matched with an agent soon. But again, the point of the podcast is to give notes. I would use quotation marks in the comp titles and I would edit the following line, or at least that's what Lena claims. And then I, I'm not going to say it perfectly, but just to give you the idea, um, at least that's what Lena claims when the homicide investigation is open. Because you ended up bearing the fact that there was a homicide investigation in the following sentence, which again, as you could tell by Carly's reaction, doesn't actually matter. But it's, it's in my opinion, that would actually elevate the stakes, right? Bring the fact that there is a homicide investigation to the forefront of the story. Some stories, they do take place in like, like I'm thinking of Leanne Moriarty's Big Little Lies. Like they do have a lot of scenes where they're investigating things or that TV show, The Affair. But it isn't quite clear that there is a homicide investigation because the death hasn't been ruled a homicide yet. And so in your case, if it has, that actually means even more tension, right? So something to think about. I actually had a question when I read this, which I'll ask because this is the amazing thing about what we're doing here. You say multi-POV. Whose POV do we get? Because is it just the sisters? Because that'd be dual. So you didn't say dual. So who else? So I have a less than straightforward answer to a very straightforward question, okay. which is that part of the mystery is whether one or both twins are narrated. Um, I can say that primarily it's a story told in the first person from the perspective of Lena, our protagonist. And it's for the reader to decide if and or when Joe chimes in. In addition, there are some third-person chapters to explore the perspectives, primarily of the detectives. And these chapters, are they like shorter chapters, like with the Q&A? Or or are they like chapters where we really dig deep into the interiority of the detectives? They're shorter chapters, but there is some digging into who are they, what are 
what are they getting from from all that's kind of unfolding in front yeah. of them? Yeah, like way more than a transcript, right? With the q and actually go into their heads. Absolutely. It's third person close for, yeah. um, for the detectives. Because when I saw this query and then when I scrolled down and I was like, let's just see what point of view. And I, I skipped chapter one because it's two lines. Not skipped as in I didn't read it. Skipped as in I didn't count it for the purposes of my question. My theory, and we can cut this if, if you want us to. My theory is it wasn't actually Lena who was talking to us, right? In the first person, it was Joe. She was Joe pretending to be Lena. And if that's what you want the reader to think, I think you're on the right track. But if that's not what you want the reader to think, like, let's say that's not the case and that's just a red herring. So people like me go, it's not actually Lena. It's Joe who's being you know, interrogated. Interrogated is the wrong word because she's not a suspect officially. But then I, I would add something to throw people off the tracks if that's not what you want them to think. But I feel like I'm getting, I'm talking about the pages. So I'll stop now. Yeah, you've dived in. You've dived right the hell in. Okay, um, let's pull it back again. So Emma, what response do you have to that? What questions do you have for Carly and Cece based on, you know, their feedback to your query letter? Well, I'm, first of all, I'm I'm so thrilled that uh, you enjoyed it. And and so thrilled that you're doing this on this, this podcast, I would just say, has changed substantially the kind of query letter uh, that I've been constructing. So the the number of edits that uh, that this podcast allowed me to make was was pretty huge. I would say, Cece, thank you for the comments on kind of highlighting the this is a homicide investigation. Stakes are higher, tensions there, and then actually you kind of went right to it, which was I thought that they would have questions about POV. And so as long as I'm not misrepresenting it by describing it as multi POV, then that's good. But it is you you've kind of targeted exactly what I was concerned about, which is, is that going to be confusing? So that's, that's something great for me to think about. So I wasn't confused. I was curious. That's totally fine. In fact, it's a good thing, right? Like curiosity. Yeah. Yay. Confusion. Nay. Yeah. And trying to write a query letter for a multi POV novel is hard. It's so hard. It's the hardest type of query letter that you can write. So the fact that you just simplified it for yourself by not explaining all the POVs, actually you did yourself a favor (laughs) because you made this easier to consume while still making it interesting. So you did your job. You did your job. Wonderful. Any other questions, Emma? Uh, Not that I can think of right now. Okay, that's fine. You've got time to process. All right. So now we're going to ask Emma just to give an overview for the listeners as to what are in her first five pages so that as we discuss it, you'll understand exactly what it is we're speaking about. So Emma, give us a bit of a synopsis there. Absolutely. So the book opens in the present with a very short snippet. I didn't wake up today planning to kill two people. One, yes, but not two. It was never supposed to end like this. The next chapter, still in the present, finds us at a police station in an interrogation room. We meet Lena Jansen, who's giving us a first-person account of being interviewed by two homicide detectives, Detective Anthony Garcia and Detective Britta Algren. We learn that Lena's toddler, Jack, is dead, and it appears that Lena's sister, Joe, was babysitting for him when he died. Lena is stunned, struggling to answer the detective's questions about her arrangements for Jack's care, about her whereabouts that afternoon, but she's also being slightly evasive about her activities earlier that day. And I would say that's a that's a pretty much what's going on in the first five pages. Awesome. Thanks, Emma. All right, Carly, let's start with you again. What was your take on the pages? Okay, so I really, really was just so curious. I mean, I, as Cece was saying, it almost, it matters that we are dancing between who this is in terms of like which sister it is. It matters and it doesn't, right? It matters because ultimately that's the thread of the story and and that's what we're kind of here to figure out. But it doesn't matter in the sense that again, like Cece said, the curiosity is there, right? Like the book is doing its job. So it's not that you have to explain to it. Like it's not your job as the author to tell us which sister this is, right? Like you're you're planting all the seeds in such a way that some readers are going to think like, oh, I have this all figured out. And then other readers are going to think like, I don't know where this is going. So in terms of that kind of internal confusion about what sister this might be is actually 
really interesting and one of those threads I think that that's really going to pull us all along in terms of uh, like on a line by line level here there was a couple things where you're where the character is very in tune with how they're feeling and what they're touching and all of their senses and everything like that like they're talking about being cold and then the blanket and then the mug is hot and it's burning the fingers I would try to not like double down because sometimes you kind of explain it twice you say the mug is so hot it feels like it's burning my fingers and then you say this pain provides a point of focus I squeeze it harder like just things like that where I just it almost feels like you're doubling down so just try to just only say that type of thing once you also say just above that I feel numb, cold, like my insides might never fully defrost. And so you're kind of repeating yourself, like numb, cold, and also your insides might never fully, but kind of the same thing, right? So again, you, you kind of just like double down. So whatever you can, just like strike through and just try to narrow down on like exactly that feeling instead of saying it twice. And and yeah, like there was on that first page, again, th- this comes down to you doing your job right. But on the first page, I was confused about how distant the 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 person was feeling on the page, right? It doesn't open with a mom just like screaming on the top of her lungs being like, my child's dead, right? Like it's this like very numb woman just like sitting here trying to figure out what's going on. And so again, you don't need to have the mom screaming at the top of her head, but it makes me think, oh, why isn't this mom screaming at the top of her head? Why is she numb? Why isn't she rattling the, the doors trying to get out? You know what I mean? Like, where is that emotionality? And you tuck it away in a way that you're describing it as numb, but numb can also mean effusive or numb can also mean she wasn't there for the murder. You know, like all of these things that we don't actually know and can't quite figure out. So yeah, so all of that to say, you're doing your job right. It's compelling. It's a page turner. And I definitely want to want to figure out what's happening next. And I, I think it's going to be interesting to see how the head hopping goes because you have like chapter one now and that short line and then chapter two now and then like uh, are you going to eventually tell us who's speaking when are we moving into the past just exactly how much hopping we're going to do and whenever I work on a client project like this it's really hard to critique the opening until I've read the whole thing, right? Like I need to kind of like see this whole picture, see the whole book. And then we kind of go back and make sure the ending or the beginning, sorry, matches up to exactly where we need it to be. So all of this to say it's a really brilliant opening. And in terms of me having to critique it, I can't wait to read the full thing. And uh, and then I can kind of go back and, and help you with the beginning. <laughs> That's awesome. Awesome feedback, Carly. Thank you. Right. I I feel like we would have had a bit of a shock tank moment if Emma had directed the query to both Cece and Carly. But because it was just to Carly, I feel like Cece isn't quite going to do her shock tank fighting. Or are you still going to try, Cece? Not fair to do it because I have to respect the rules of the game. But no, seriously, I would be like getting on a train to Carly's and picketing outside her house. Let me have Emma, which would probably make it sound like you're in a hostage situation. But Hey, <laughs> um, no, these pages are really good. Emma. I hope I hope you're very proud of it of them because it's it's just the quality is is outstanding. I like I always say like people could give notes like I could get a best selling published book and still give notes on that book because that's you know you can always find something to share with someone. So of course I have things to tell you, but like I was curious. Number one job with the query letter with the first five pages with the first chapter really is to keep me wanting to find out what happened and what will happen, right? Like this, it's an important distinction. It can't just be, how do we get here? It has to be what's going to happen next with specificity. And that's exactly what's what's going through my head, right? Like I have theories, like I shared, like I don't think that we are in Lena's head. I think we're in Joe's head. I think Joe's pretending to be Lena, but it, does it matter? No, because whether that's true or not, A, I want to read to find out. And also B, you got me theorizing. So whether I'm, I'm completely off and I'm going to be corrected or whether I'm right and I'm going to be satisfied, it's still equally compelling. I also think that to lean in on what Carly said, there was a bit of repetition with sensations. The whooshing in the ear is something you mentioned a few times, heartbeat, feeling numb and cold. The impression I got is that you wove this in after writing like the dialogue or the interiority. I think that it's, it's something that you can compress. Like these five pages, I think they can be two. I think you can convey the dialogue with a bit more of like condensing it. Um, I don't think we need like the back and forth quite so much. I'm not saying like cut it all out because it's important for us to see what kind of word choice she's going with and everything. It's also important that we don't hear it in her head because we don't know who's actually talking, but it's, but it's excellent. One thing that I really think that you should, so suggestions, right? Like on 
page three, but remember there's the query before. She is very observant. Like Detective Garcia is playing good cop, right? Like whether he's actually good cop or not, I don't know. But Detective Algren is not looking at her right? Like, and Detective Algren, I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right, is a woman. So I'm thinking to myself, I wonder if she's paying more attention, whether she's Joe or Lena, to this woman detective and not the man detective, because it's harder to trick women. And I love that. And so that's something that you don't have to change in these first five pages, but I feel like leaning into that, leaning into the fact that maybe you're doing it already, but I kept hoping you, you would. I also don't think you need the italics, like for the thoughts. We're in first person. We don't need it unless there's something about like a red herring, which I didn't catch, but I don't think you need it. It's not getting in the way. Just don't think you need it. Um, I also have to talk about how wonderful this detail, a few details are like, as an example, it's funny how our minds fix on irrelevant details in a crisis. The spoiled steaks are entirely beside the point. But now that I've thought about it, I can't stop imagining the smell of rotting meat that will greet me when I return to the house. First of all, she didn't say home. She said the house, which is telling. And second of all, that is exactly what happens. Like when you're in a crisis, especially in the aftermath, right? Like it already happened. You're, you're thinking about the smallest things. And I think it's a way our mind protects ourselves, us, right? Like we, we can't think about the big picture. And so we focus on this tiny, tiny thing and we spiral. So yeah, I, I again, big note is that I would compress. I think you can cut back on, on a few things and lean in whether in these five, first five pages or in the future, because I was curious. I was also curious about things that weren't on the page, but that were made clear in the query letter and that are just obvious. Things like what twisted history? Like they have a twisted history. I want to know what it is. So loved this, like amazing. Good job. Congratulations. I am both happy that you directed this at Carly because Carly's the best, but I'm also very upset because yeah, I, I was looking forward to a battle of the agents. Yeah, no, it's so good. And I also, I want to echo the detective Algren stuff because what, I, what I was sensing by her observing the fact that Dr. or Detective Algren wasn't looking at her was that she wanted Detective Algren to look at her because she wanted to convince her. She wanted that woman to say like, to see me, like, I want you to see me. And the fact that she wasn't was like, either I don't have the opportunity to convince Detective Algren or I'm losing this opportunity to make this connection woman to woman in a way that this woman won't do that to me. You know what I mean? I don't know. Like I was sensing that little like bit of a conflict of like wanting to be seen. Whether she is the victim or isn't the victim in the situation, I was just, I could tell there was a little bit of female tension there, which I thought was good. One of the reasons why this works so well is because whether she's Lena, whether she's Joe, whether she's the killer or not, she's still someone who lost a sister and either a nephew or a child. So clearly that's, that's bad. Like she is in a crisis. She is going mm. through a tough spot, no matter who she is. And this is why like one of the many reasons why this setup is so powerful. A powerful setup can make all the difference, right? And a lot of people, Emma, pick a powerful setup and they don't deliver. And you did. So again, you should be very, very proud of yourself. Have have a celebratory uh, mocktail or cocktail or whatever whatever you like tonight because you deserve it. I, I'm just going to hop in here. So, so Emma, I want to add as well, the writing was excellent, really, really excellent. There were, however, a few things that can be improved upon. So I'm putting on my creative instructor hat now, and I'm going to share screen so you can see them, but I'm sharing them as well for the listeners, because as writers, we all have these little things that we do that we don't pick up ourselves. And once we become aware of it, even just on five pages, you can then search the rest of your documents to find where you've done that particular thing. So I'm just going to point out a few for you here, Emma. Hold on. Let me share screen. Alrighty. So have a look here. I have highlighted the times you go with says Detective Aldrin. There's ones where I've crossed out. The year again was says Detective Garcia. Yeah, says Detective Garcia says Detective Garcia, says Detective Garcia. All right. So in those instances, firstly, a lot of these times where you said that, it was actually them asking a question. So you want to mix up your says with asks 
And you want to mix up the order of that. So you don't want to always say, says Detective Garcia. You can say Detective Garcia asks or asks Detective Garcia. But even better than that, because you would like to give things that we call action beats rather than dialogue tags, because dialogue tags add very little value. So an example up here is, so is the chamomile all right, Lena? It's all we had, says Detective Garcia, who has just returned from getting me some tea. So instead of doing that, you can say, is the chamomile tea all right, Lena? It's all we had. Detective Garcia has just returned from getting me tea. So we know we, we have an action beat there without the dialogue tag. So we know that it's Detective Garcia who is saying this particular thing. And it takes out the things like so-and-so says, so-and-so asks, which feels extremely repetitive. And you don't pick it up in your own manuscript. But I promise you that one day when this does get published and when somebody does record the audiobook of it, you're going to hear that in the audiobook that says the ask, that says the ask, and it becomes a little bit painful there. Something else I want to point out that you do is that you tend to put all the dialogue together. You, you clump all the dialogue together and then afterwards you put like the action beat or something else. So for example, it's fine, thank you, but I want to go home. I have to be with my husband. Is he here yet? I'll tell you everything. I just need this part to be over. Tears thicken my voice, which is raspy from sobbing. So split that up as opposed to adding the action afterwards, split it up with the dialogue. So it's fine, thank you, but I want to go home. I have to be with my husband. Tears thicken my voice, which is raspy from sobbing. Is he here that I'll tell you everything. I just need this part to be over. And so that's something that happened quite a lot. So it was all the dialogue and then afterwards who said it. So here again, you know, okay, we are still recording and we're continuing with your statements. If you need another rest, you can let us know. Start whenever you're ready, Mrs. Jansen, blah, 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 blah. So I just cut that up with, if you need another rest, you can let us know. Detective Algren says without looking up, start whenever you're ready. So you, you see, if you just split up your dialogue and the dialogue tags, it doesn't feel like those things are being tacked on after that. And it would be fine if you did that once or twice, but have a look here again, consistently done throughout. So it's always nice to put those action beats in the middle of dialogue because it gives the reader something to imagine while they are reading the dialogue as opposed to afterwards. So that's, these are just ticks that I would suggest you go through the document and look out for. It's just going to elevate it. It's just going to polish it and take it to, you know, a whole other a whole other level. Okay, so what questions do you now have? Questions, comments for us? Well, thank you all so much for your comments and your very kind words. Um, and Bianca, for the masterclass in the five-page edit, which now I'm so excited to get into the whole manuscript and make some changes and seeing it, you know, highlighted like that just makes it so clear. And I, I so appreciate you taking the time to do that. And, and both for Carly and Cece, I'm so thrilled that you liked it. And, and again, the, the, these first five pages are not the five pages I would have sent you without listening to the podcast. I started in a different place. I started in a different tense and really listening to tension, start in the right place, have a scene that makes the reader ask questions, uh, really made me uh, take a hard look at what I was doing and make some changes. So I wanted to say thank you so much for that. The curiosity that you both have of like, who is it? I'm glad because that's, you know, not to be too precious about it. It's twins. They're identical. Like, yes, identity is an issue. And actually to Carly's earlier point about the title, which I know is kind of a strange title. I just wanted to add a comment on that, which is that cuckoo bees are social parasites. They're nearly identical to regular bees, which allows them to infiltrate and destroy the hive. So they're nature's perfect imposter. And so because this is a story about identical twins, I kind of like the parallels between the human and the animal world, just to give a little explainer for my, my yeah. kind of story. And does the... Yeah. And does that theme come back like the natural world or does, is there a line about cuckoo bees in the book or how does that kind of weave itself together? It does. It, it comes in much later, much later in the story. Yeah. Yeah. So that's, uh, that, I mean, I'm just, I'm so thrilled to hear your comments and the point that was made about the repetition, absolutely something I struggle with in the very generous group of family and friends that I've had 
read drafts of this, um, including my writing critique partner, Christina, who's read more drafts than I can count at this point. Repetition has always been a problem for me. And I, I do blame this on being a lawyer and needing to hammer a point to death, uh, which is not a good trait. And so I, uh, it's definitely something I need to work on and, and seeing it highlighted like that is extremely, extremely helpful for me. Listen, I've published two books and there is still, a po- I've never met a point that I don't want to belabor. So this is probably going to be something that's going to be ongoing for you because I still find it even now an ongoing issue for me. And that's where your critique partners and you become more aware of it. So you do become, you know, more laser sharp in searching for that. But the critique partners are always such a great resource for cutting that out as well. So I'm sure we're seeing a little bit of repetition, but I'm sure they've cut out a heck of a lot more as well. Oh, yes. Yes. They're uh, my uh, my critique partner, my friend, Christina, she's been really good for that. You know, do you need to say this five different ways? Can I do two, maybe three? <laughs> So, uh, yes, definitely something I've, I continue to struggle with. And uh, Carly, I meant to ask earlier, is the word count okay or is it a bit on the short side? That was something I was wanting to ask you. You know, I don't have a problem with the word count at all. I always say the word count needs to be as long as it takes to tell the story the right way. So I don't have an issue with it. It's on the tighter side, but is it a problem? Everybody's attention spans right now are like minuscule, (laughs) you know, there's a lot going on in the world. So I don't mind a shorter novel at all. And it's not short per se. It's like just on the shorter side of average. Awesome. I I would, I would just add, I've, uh, I think I, I pitched it as 74. It's now 75. So I don't, I don't, that's not a huge difference, but, uh, it's a little bit longer now. Awesome. Okay, Carly, so you would like to see those pages. You're hoping Emma's going to send that submission to you. Is that right? That is correct. And I will forward it to my Kindle and read it immediately. So yes, please do. I would be thrilled to. That makes me so happy. Yeah. And if you want to take some time and make changes, no pressure, <laughs> send it, you know, whenever you're ready, but yes, I will read it immediately when I get it. <laughs> do you just want to type in your email address for her, um, Carly, so that she does have it for that? Yeah. All right. So thank you so much, Emma, for joining us. It's incredibly brave to come on and, you know, it's not just for yourself, it's for the benefit of other writers who learn from the critique that you're getting. And it's a great way to pay it forward for the critique that you've been learning from as well. So we appreciate the huge courage it's taken to come on and chat with us and uh, I'm so glad that the feedback has been so wonderful and keeping everything crossed for you that this takes off from here and now we're moving on to today's guest did you know that 70% of all books are sold online via e-commerce if you're an author wondering how you can get some of that market share this is for you hi I'm your co-host Carly Waters and I'm here to tell you how writers can work on their author brand to build an audience and convert those followers into book buyers do you ever wonder why so many authors publish their books and later say they didn't sell as many copies as they wanted it happens over and over and it's all over social media authors really think it's a them problem but not always they really just weren't shown the way and i don't want you guys to launch a book and show up at book events and have two people in the chairs i have helped clients launch books to the bestseller list for over 15 years I have now built a six module, 10 hour course with all my knowledge, and that will give you the craft and book business information that you won't find anywhere else. And there's an app. Over 100 of you have already joined my new course. And writer Siobhan Moore said, I'm halfway through the course and grieving that I didn't have this information sooner. There's really nowhere else to find it worth every penny. Thank you, Siobhan. If you want all that info and everything that will change the course of your writing career, go to carlywaters.com slash course to learn more and use discount code POD15 for the month of April at checkout. That's POD, P-O-D 15 at checkout over at carlywaters.com slash course. Hi everyone, this is Cece. If you're a fan of books with hooks, then you've probably heard me use the term interiority. I often catch myself saying things like, these pages need more interiority or The interiority here needs work, and that's because interiority is a super important element of storytelling. It's what makes books unique. But as it turns out, a lot of you have questions about what exactly is interiority and how to properly weave it into stories, which is why I'm teaching my popular writing interiority class in a new two-day format. We'll meet on Thursday, June 6 at 8 p.m. via Zoom to cover all things interiority, including the difference between interiority and emotions, how interiority is different from telling, how to leverage interiority into plot points, how to strike a balance between interiority and mystery, and more. 
and then we'll meet again for a live cozy Q&A session on Monday, June 10th, also at 8 p.m. via Zoom, in which you'll have the opportunity to turn your camera on if you choose. If you're interested, check out the link in my bio on Instagram, and I hope to see you there. We're beyond excited to announce the first ever The Shit No One Tells You About Writing virtual retreat on the 29th and 30th of January 2022. Who says Januarys have to be dreary and shitty? Not us. We have a jam-packed, amazing schedule, including an hour-long discussion with award-winning number one New York Times bestselling author and publishing phenomenon, Britt Bennett, who is the author of The Vanishing Half and the mothers about her journey to publication and her advice for emerging writers. We also have a ton of talks on craft and the business side of writing presented by myself, Carly Waters and Cece Lira. We will also have world-renowned story expert Lisa Cron, author of Story Genius and Wired for Story. We'll also have Courtney Mom, who's the author of the brilliant Before and After the Book Deal, as well as Valerie Francis, who is an accredited editor when it comes to the Story Grid method. We'll also have Sally Kim, who is the SVP and publisher of Putnam. She's a big-time editor who's edited novels like The Prophets by Robert Jones Jr., which was recently longlisted for the National Book Award, as well as Such a Fun Age by Kylie Reed, The Immortalist by Chloe Benjamin, The Gunkle by podcast favorite Stephen Rowley, and Girls Like Us by Christina Elger. And then there's a ton of other things we'll be doing, like breakaway sessions, where you can meet other writers or pick our brains with burning questions that you have. You get to speak to all of the presenters after their sessions in Q&As. We have a ton of prizes we'll be giving away and a lot of really exciting content. So if you're interested, please go to my website, biancamaray.com. Go to the page that has courses and retreats and services and you'll find more information there as well as details about costing and a link to book. We are really, really looking forward to seeing you at this amazing upcoming event. Before we go to today's guest, this just a reminder, CC has a course coming up on the 4th of November at 8 p.m. Eastern Time. That's called Writing Emotion, How to Weave Emotion into Your Story. Go to CC's Instagram page to find the link there to book for that course. Today's guest is the best-selling author of The Perfect Nanny, one of the New York Times book reviews, 10 best books of the year, for which she became the first Moroccan woman to win France's most prestigious literary prize. A journalist and frequent commentator on women's and human's rights, she spearheaded a campaign to help Moroccan women speak out as self-declared outlaws against their country's unfair and obsolete laws. She is French President Emmanuel Macron's personal representative for the promotion of French language and culture and was ranked number two on Vanity Fair France's annual list of the 50 most influential French people in the world. Born in Morocco in 1981, she now lives in Paris with her French husband and their two young children. It's my pleasure to welcome Leila Slimani. Today's guest is a very, very special one. Leila, welcome to the show. It's such an honor to get to chat with you today and thanks for taking the time for us. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Right, we're going to begin today's episode guest segment with a string of lightning round questions that I'm going to fire off at Leila, and she's going to answer for us to give us insights into her process and who she is as a writer. Okay, first question, are you a plotter or a pantser? A plotter, I think. You mean, do I give more importance to the plot? This is what you mean. So upfront, do you kind of plot everything out before you begin writing or do you have a general idea and you write and you see where it goes? I, I would say both. Uh, the truth is I have a plot and I have also some scenes that I know that I can see. I have visions and I write those scenes and I try at the end to structure all this to make a good plot. It's a mix of of both, I think. It would be impossible for me not to have the plot at the beginning and not also to follow my intuition and to follow my visions when I write. Wonderful. So it's a hybrid. Okay. So do you write on computer or in longhand in notebooks? 
I write on computer, but I always have a notebook with me to uh, write some ideas, some sentences I can hear in the street or things I can read in the newspaper or see on, on TV. So my notebook is always with me for inspiration. But when I write, I write on my computer. Wonderful. Do you like writing in private or in public? Oh, in private, always. It's absolutely impossible for me to write in public in a cafe or in a restaurant. I couldn't imagine that. Yeah, I'm exactly the same. I'm easily distracted. So then maybe this answers the next question. Do you write in silence or to music? Silence, absolutely, because I need to hear the music of my own sentences, of my own language. And it's very important for me. So when I when I write, then I read out loud what I just wrote. And it's very important for me to hear this music. So if I was listening to music, I would probably be, uh, you know, it would be poisoned. It would be a problem for me. So impossible to listen to music. I love hearing that because we often say to our emerging writers, read your work aloud. It's incredibly, incredibly important to hear it, not just to see it on the page. Do you share your work while you're drafting it or do you wait until the end when it's finished? No, I share my work with my publisher while I'm writing after the first 50 or 80 pages, I send them to him and I wait for his reaction. And uh, very often it helps me because he he can tell me, okay, I'd like that, but you should uh, do more on this character. He gives me a lot of ideas and we've always worked like this. I'm always in a dialogue with him. And and do you share your work with your agent as well, or is it just your, your editor? No, I don't have an agent. I work completely alone, me and my and my editor. Okay, so what's your favorite point of view to write in? First person or third person? Third person. I've never, well, I just wrote uh, one book, first person, but always third person. And I love to write through the point of view of one of my characters. All right, so sort of third person close then. Do you prefer past or present tense or don't you have a preference? Difficult question, tough question. I like the present um, and in my two, my first two books were at the present and in a certain way, I think it's easiest to write in the in the present. There's something uh, more clinical, more dry, more rough when you write in the present. But I love also the lyrical style that you can find when you when you write in the past. So I love both, I think. Yeah, so obviously it just depends on, on which suits that particular story. Exactly. Do you think prologue are awesome or do you think prologues are cheating? I don't really have a point of view. I think that if a prologue is well written and if you feel it's necessary to write it, it can be beautiful. The only thing is it has to be necessary. It's not, uh, it has not to be artificial, you know, it has to be very authentic and sincere. So no, I don't really have a point of view. If it's beautiful, if it's good, it's good. Yeah. We say to our emerging writers that many of them tend to put on a prologue as a band-aid because they feel that the opening chapter hasn't done the heavy lifting that it needs to do. Sometimes they, they tend to fall back on prologues to kind of make up for that. That would be a very bad idea because when you're a writer, you don't have to explain too much. You don't have to justify yourself or be afraid of will people understand or not understand. I think at the moment you begin to write, you must accept the, first of all, you must think that reader is clever. The reader is smart the reader will understand a lot of things and you don't have to explain everything to him he's absolutely able to to understand what you what you're trying to do so never justify your work and never try to explain everything because it will ruin a a book do you prefer drafting or do you prefer revising i prefer revising drafting you have to do it but it's difficult (laughs) it's very difficult so i think that the moment you arrive to revising means that your book exists and you did something and you have a real work to 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 work on so it's better it's less frustrating i think yeah are you a big fan of adverbs and adjectives or do you try and cut them all out when i write a book like the perfect nanny when it's a book in the present sort of thriller I hate adverbs and adjectives because it doesn't suit with my subject when I write a book like The Country of Others that is a historical book a familial saga I need an adjective but I don't like adverbs I try to avoid them as much as I can Right. And and for our listeners, this goes back to what we're always saying. If you use a really well-chosen verb, you don't need the adverbs to, to help Absolutely. do the heavy lifting. Right. Do you love or hate the copy editing part of the process? No, I love that. I love that. And um, I love every 
part of the, the process because, um, you know, it's like when you're having a child, you like the first semester and you like the second one. And even if the end is difficult and you feel heavy and you just want to give birth and to meet your baby, at the end, when you think of it, you you like it, uh, you like the third semester too. So I love every part of the process because you need that. You, you need to do whatever you can and to put all your energy for your book to be the best you can write. Wonderful. What generally comes to you first, character or plot? Character. Character always first. And the truth is that when the character begins to exist, they tell me what to do. They tell me what to write. You have to listen to them. They have a real life. They have emotions. And sometimes I even fight with them. Sometimes I don't agree with what they want to do and what how they want to act. And there is this very beautiful anecdote about Tolstoy saying that... Uh, uh, saying to his publisher, I can't write because Anna Karinin uh, has left and I'm waiting for her to come back. And the publisher at that time, he didn't understand that. But uh, I think it's absolutely true. Sometimes they are here and they are telling us what to do. And sometimes they leave and we just have to wait them to come back. Wonderful. What do you prefer, the three-act structure or do you prefer using more action beats like in something like Save the Cat, for example? Yeah, I prefer that to uh, Save the Cat. I love the no i'm not the three parts and i don't like uh, something that is too structured i i love to invent something that's something that is hybrid that is uh, weird that is gray i don't love it i don't like when it's too structured and when you can see exactly how it's done right what do you prefer writing dialogue or description Oh, I don't like to write dialogues at all. I think it's very difficult to write good dialogue and I'm not a, I'm not good at that. And there are very few dialogues in my books. And I think that when you know you're not good at, don't do it. If you know it, it's not going to be good, try another way to have the conversation between your characters. At the beginning, I remember I was speaking with my publisher and he said, you don't have the gift for dialogue, find something else. <laughs> and, uh, and that's what I did. And I'm very, I, I'm very admirative of uh, writers who can write good dialogues. It's very difficult. There was actually going to be a question I was going to ask you later, how little dialogue there is in the novel. So I was actually going to ask you specifically about that. So you've actually answered for that for us up front. And then are you a fan of backstory or do you avoid it at all costs? Um, now, you have to explain to me what you mean by backstories. So in terms of a character's history, is it a case of you know it, but you don't put it on the page? Or is it a case of you believe everything that came before that's relevant needs to be there on the page for the reader to have access to? Oh, no, I'm not a fan of backstories. I think that um, maybe the most important in a novel is what you don't write, maybe even more important than what you write. I think that ellipse, what we call ellipse in French, I don't know in English how you say, is very, very important. It's very important not to say everything because in those spaces, you will leave a possibility for the reader to to work on his own imagination and to imagine what happened before. And uh, uh, it's a, you, you put certain freedom, you give freedom to the to the reader in the, in the novel. I don't like the idea of telling everything and understanding everything everything, explaining everything. A novel is also about silence and about ellipse. Yeah. Right. So uh, uh, your new novel in the country of others is modeled on your grandmother's immigration from France to Morocco amid Morocco's fight for independence. Could you tell us a bit more about that as an inspiration? I've read some of the interviews you've done and your grandmother sounds like an incredibly fascinating woman. Yes, she was. She was. And she had a fantastic personality. She was very free and very funny. And she was a great storyteller. And I think that she was my inspiration as a woman, as a as a writer, too. And um, I wanted to give a tribute to that, to her, her sense of telling stories. But also, I wanted to the reader to feel what I felt when I was a child, hearing the stories she told me about the war, about how she met my grandfather. It was so fascinating. It was so different, so original that I, I really wanted to explore that and to try to convey this emotion. She also wrote a memoir, didn't she? Did that help you in terms of the writing of this novel? Was that something you referred to a lot? I know you've said that you firmly believe that this is fiction and you've entirely fictionalized it, but in terms of your research process? 
Yes, it helped me a little bit, even if the memoir of my grandmother is more about her own family and about the Alsace at the end of the 19th century and the beginning of the 20th century. So it gave me the backstory we were talking about before, and it helped me understand what it was to be an Alsacian girl in the in the 40s. But I didn't use a lot of, of information from that. And the information in the book, I knew it because she told me in person and she told me so many stories is that uh, I didn't really need to to read the memoir to know them. Wonderful. So you've said in an interview that for inspiration, you turned to American Western movies and the novels of William Faulkner, Carson McCullers and Flannery O'Connor. You said there is a lot Moroccans can identify with in Southern literature from the relationship to nature at once hostile and sensual to racial tensions, even if they're not the same as in the United States. And you said you wanted to build your own Alabama. Could you tell us a bit more about that? Yeah, I've always been a huge fan of the literature of the South of America and I've always been fascinated and very interested in the, the story of this part of the of the US because of course of the story of slavery, segregation and the relationship to, to nature. When I was beginning my, my book I thought okay it's not because I write about Morocco that I can't use the, this literature that inspired me so much and that moved me so much and I thought that for instance, in a novel like Gone with the Wind, that has nothing to do with my own life or my own cultural tradition. At the same time, there are a lot of things I can identify myself to that I can understand. Tension between races, tension between classes, the relationship that women can have with the war, um, and all that, and to the farm, also to the property, like in, in Gun with the Wind. So I think it's always interesting to use references that can seem very far away to describe a, a situation because it gives you a certain sense of universality. Absolutely. When I was writing my debut novel, which was based on growing up in apartheid South Africa and pretty much being brainwashed as a white child to be racist. Books that guided me in that writing of that were books that were American, things like The Secret Life of Bees, etc. And although the American experience was so different, there were those very much those, those commonalities in terms of theme. So yeah, I can completely relate to that. So your prose has been described as unsparing. Now, the hardest part for emerging writers is to find their distinctive voice and their distinctive style. Could you tell us, you know, how you went about finding that voice? Was it always your voice from being a young writer? Is it something that you've grown into? It's very difficult to say. I would say that it's a mix of work, a lot of work, writing, writing, writing all the time, reading a lot also. Uh, it's very important to, to read all the time and uh, to be interested in the style of other writers. So it's a mix of work and also one day you find the ability to be in front of your computer and to feel completely free and to feel completely sincere. And you stop thinking about what people are going to think, uh, how readers are going to react, how media are going to react. You think only about your book and about a certain truth, a certain sincerity that you want to put in, in your work. And I think that's the moment when you find your style and when you find your voice. You have to try to dig very deeply inside yourself and listen to what you really have to say, not to say to seduce or to please or to be the best writer in the world, but just to say something that matters to you. Yeah, yeah, that that definitely that definitely resonates. You know, for younger writers today, you started writing very young. And when I read articles about younger authors, people like Zadie Smith, I mean, I remember reading White Teeth and I absolutely adored that novel. And Zadie Smith has said in subsequent interviews that when she reads that book, she's very embarrassed by it compared to her newer novels. And I struggle with that because I must be honest, I preferred her earlier work to her later work. So is that something that you ever experienced? experience yourself going back to your earlier work? I never think about my work. I never analyze my work. When something is finished, it's finished and I do something else. And that's the only thing I can do. I think it's very dangerous for a writer to think too much about himself. I'm not very interested in myself. I write, I write my stories and then I begin another one. I want to read so many books that I don't have time to reread my own. So I want to read books from other people. So I don't really have any 
idea or any point of view of my own work. I think that uh, other people can do it very, they can do it better than me. Yeah, well, like, you know, everyone's a critic. So, yeah. <laughs> right. So, we, when we give emerging writers advice, you know, we'll give them sort of rules about writing, about exposition versus dramatization, in terms of when you begin with your opening pages, you should anchor the reader in that particular scene, no backstory, no exposition, et cetera, et cetera. So, that's the guidelines we give them as they begin writing. But, someone of your caliber, you get to the point where you have mastered those rules so well that you transcend them. And so you're able to be breaking those rules. So most young novelists, you know, will say to them, have dramatized scenes, have the dialogue in there, etc. Show everything as it unfolds rather than telling us about it. Your novel is more the exposition than the dramatization. And as well, what I found fascinating is that your opening page, they, they're visiting the farm, it's in 1947. And then in the very next paragraph, you go back in 1935 after years spent working as a translator. And then you give us some backstory and then you go to 1939 as well. And then on the next page, you bring us back to 1947. Could you give us like some advice to writers in terms of how much of the rules do they need to pay attention to? How much can they just completely ignore and find their own way into a, a novel? You know, I think that in France, we have a very different vision of what we call the rules. Uh, in France, no writer would ever tell you about the rules, about exposition, structure, how you should do. I'm quite different because I think that, uh, for, for instance, in France, people don't understand the creative writing in the U.S. They they say, oh, you know, if you're a writer, you're a writer. And you're born a writer and you, you will ab be able to do it and you have nothing to learn. And I don't believe in that. I think you can learn a lot of things. But at the same time, I think also that it's very important to trust the reader, not to, to think, oh, no, I can't do that because he won't understand or it's too complicated or he will be he will feel lost. I think that if you have enough confidence in yourself and in the reader, if you take his hand and you're like, I'm going to tell you a story, just listen to me, just be quiet and attentive and you will see, you will understand everything. I try to do exactly as my mother and my grandmother was doing when I was a child and they were telling these stories before I sleep. You know, children, they can understand very complex stories. And you have to think of that, the power of telling just a story when, you know, out loud, you tell a story to someone. So I always imagine that I have someone in front of me, a child or anyone, and I'm telling him the story. And the only thing that I want, the only thing that I need is for him to understand that and not to feel lost in the in my plot and in, with the characters. So yes, I, ha I have a lot of confidence in the in the reader yeah and there's so much to be said for for the oral tradition as well when it comes to absolutely it's very important to be and i read a lot of fairy tales i read a lot of myths uh, it's a great inspiration for me i think it's very important to reread the stories of when we were children because the oral tradition is so strong when it comes to telling a story and building a structure like this that seems so so easy so natural so yeah it's a great source of uh, inspiration you must be someone people must love having at dinner parties because you must be <laughs> a wonderful storyteller at, at dinner parties as well. Uh, you spoke about, you know, writing in France versus writing in North America. So that takes me to my next question. You know, can you speak about writing in French and then seeing your work translated into English? So many of our listeners speak English as a second language, and yet they feel like they have to write in it for whatever reason, accessibility, or maybe they can't find publishers in the languages in which they're writing. Can can you speak a bit about that? I couldn't imagine writing in another language than French. I think that the relationship that you have with the language you write in is so important. It's so question of um I don't know how to say it comes from your gut. It's you you have to write with the, the language you dream in, with the language from your childhood, with the language you, you learn the first word with. I can't imagine writing in English or in another language. I love French language. I could hear it for, for hours and I love to read poems and to hear songs in in French. I think it's very, very important to have an emotional, to have an instinctive relationship with the language you're writing in. And at the same time, I love working with my translator. My English translator, Sam Taylor, is so gifted and he's a 
wonderful translator and I learned a lot of things uh, working with him about my own style but also about the the English language it's uh, it's wonderful the work you can do with a translator yeah so perhaps advice then to our listeners out there is instead of trying to do your first draft you know in English if you're wanting to be published in English perhaps to write that in the language like Leila says that you dream in that you think in that comes to you so instinctively I think I think so Yeah, because I feel like if you're translating your own work as if you're thinking in one language and then you're writing in another language, there's that barrier immediately because you're constantly not necessarily censoring yourself, but you but you're having to translate yourself. And there's so many words in different languages that English just doesn't have a word for. Um, yeah, and it's important to be proud of your language, to be proud of the world you 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 know and of the world you 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 learn when you were a child. I think that this it's not made it's not pride. It's the fact that you sort of recognition of the beauty of a, of a language I feel it's sad that you renounce writing the language that is yours for another one because it sells better it's evident in terms of what it's saying about our world and about the global literature I think it's very sad yeah a question I wanted to ask you but I think I've just from chatting with you I think I, I do know the answer to this is has it become harder as you've had acclaim, as you've had won awards, as you've been on bestseller lists, etc. Do you feel more pressure later on with the writing than what you did before after each success? Or is that not something that you concern yourself with? You just write? No, I don't feel more pressure, but I feel uh, afraid. I think that success is not a good friend for uh, a writer. And I think that celebrity is not good for a writer. A writer should always stay hidden and should always stay invisible in his own bubble. I'm always afraid to lose my honesty and to lose uh, my my soul, my emotions. I'm afraid to be poisoned by commentators and what people are expecting from me. Because what you have, the only thing that you need, you're only... <laughs> tool when you're a writer is your heart your emotion your your soul if you're not pure anymore if you try to do things just because you need a success or because you want to please there's no point writing if you write like that and um, when you read the diaries of great writers like Steinbeck or Hemingway or writers like that they are all they all have a very mixed or ambiguous feeling about success they all say yeah it's beautiful to have success but at the same time I'm so even Albert Camus I'm so afraid not to be the man I used to be before I don't want to change and um, I think it's something very important to preserve yourself and when you write to be in a fortress in a bubble and not to be influenced what, by what's happening outside. Right. And um, you champion women a lot, Leila, and these, these writers you've all just mentioned are obviously male writers and something that women writers struggle with a lot is imposter syndrome. It's this, who am I to be writing this? Why do I have something to say that the world should hear? Why is my perspective important? What, what can you say to our, our women listeners who, who struggle with that when it comes to writing? I think that's, any writer would feel this imposter syndrome because when you have read Proust and uh, Virginia Woolf and uh, Toni Morrison, you're like, okay, what's the point in writing? <laughs> they wrote so beautiful book, I'm just going to write another book and what's the point? Every day when you go to your office to, and you're in front of your computer, you ask yourself, what's the point? So I, I felt that all my life and I sh I'm sure I'm going to feel it for the rest of of my life but that's not a problem if you feel the urge to to write if you feel that you have something to say just say it don't try to analyze to understand don't try to uh, to try to justify what you're doing there is no justification in writing or dancing or singing we do it because it's beautiful we do it because we can create beauty and emotion and we can build bridge between people that's the only thing that matter tell your story and don't think about why how do i have the right there this is if there is a place where you don't have to justify yourself it's art so do it just do it yeah and i think the lesson there for us in that is 
don't think you're going to overcome the imposter syndrome and don't think you're going to get away from it. Just write despite it, because it is always going to be there. Because I think many of our listeners feel, well, once I publish my first novel, I'll feel more confident and I'll feel like I've made it, etc. But like you say, it's, it's always going to be there. And the stakes, I think, just keep getting upped with each bit of success you have. So I think instead of it getting easier, I think it perhaps gets harder, but it's just writing, dis- writing despite that. Yeah. And I think it would be a very bad thing and a bad signal to feel too much confident that to say, okay, now I'm a writer and I know what I'm doing and I'm going to write a masterpiece. No one feels that. I don't believe in that. And I think that if you feel that, it's not a good thing. You should do something else. And that's it for today's episode. If you have any questions about writing or publishing, please email me at theshitaboutwriting at gmail.com and I'll do my best to get them answered for you. I hope you'll join us for next week's show. In the meantime, keep at it. Remember, it just takes one yes. Calling all memoirists. I'm so excited to let you know that I've put together an incredible all about memoir lineup for Saturday the 11th of May from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. Eastern Time in which six amazing speakers guide you through everything you need to know to write a memoir that will sell. You'll get opportunities to ask questions of best-selling memoirists while also standing a chance to have your query letter live critiqued during the webinar. To see the awesome lineup and to register, go to biancamaray.com. There's an early bird promotion for the first 50 delegates who sign up. Come and join us and get your memoir groove on. Calling all memoirists. I'm so excited to let you know that I've put together an incredible all about memoir lineup for Saturday the 11th of May from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. Eastern Time, in which six amazing speakers guide you through everything you need to know to write a memoir that will sell. You'll get opportunities to ask questions of best-selling memoirists, while also standing a chance to have your query letter live critiqued during the webinar. To see the awesome lineup and to register, go to biancamaray.com. There's an early bird promotion for the first 50 delegates who sign up. Come and join us and get your memoir groove on.